We are back in Revelation chapter 3. What we're doing is we've interrupted our ongoing study through the book of Acts, and we're doing a mini-series of studies through the two chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, that contain seven letters to seven specific and chosen churches. They're short letters, but they're, they're um, big in another sense. They're short in length, big in uh, importance and significance. And they're written in a special way by the Lord himself to these seven churches. And they're meant to be representative, meaning there's a line, as we've been focused on, that is, that is uh, occurring in each one of the seven letters. And that line is, as at the end of this letter, looking down at Revelation 3, verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a single letter written to a single church at a very specific moment in history, a very specific cultural circumstance that that church finds themselves in. We don't live in that time period. We don't live in that exact same cultural circumstance. But let the one who has spiritual ears to perceive the Lord's message, hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to Sardis at their moment in history and in their particular culture, but let, let us hear what the Spirit is saying through this message to all churches in all generations in all cultural circumstances, because the principles that applied to them apply to us as well. Now, there is a an issue here with this particular letter, but this is true for all seven letters. Our circumstances, I'm emphasizing, is not identical to theirs. Our spiritual condition as a church is not identical to their spiritual condition. But these are the messages of, a, of our heavenly high priest as he is evaluating the present spiritual condition of his churches, the churches that belong to him. And what we're looking for is not, oh yeah, we are exactly like that. What we're looking for is what can I learn from that? What can I learn from their example? So Sardis, and we've, we touched on this last week, this is part two of, of uh, the study we started last week. I wasn't able to finish it all in one Sunday. Sardis was a troubled church. Now, they weren't in a good place. Let's just remind ourselves of the specifics of their problem. In fact, let me go ahead and reread through uh, the six verses. It's a, it's a short letter, and then I'll emphasize the specific point I want to make. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you, what you received and heard and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy the one who conquers will be clothed clothed thus in white garments and i will never blot his name out of the book of life i will confess his name before my father and before his angels he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says 
to the churches. Now the trouble, the, the problem, the big issue in Sardis is identified clearly for us in verse, uh, very, the very first verse, verse one, second part of the verse. The Lord says to them, I know your works. <clears throat> you have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. So Sardis, we can clearly say, it's not an opinion. This is the Lord's evaluation and his is the only evaluation of churches that will ultimately matter. His evaluation is this was a dead church. And so the question, the first question we need to ask as we consider what does this speak to us is are we as tree of life at this present moment in the history of the church? Remember I started this teaching series because we crossed a, a boundary line as a church anniversary. We've been a church for 35 years. Most of you have not been part of the church for that entire period of time, but you are now, and, and, and so you, you, in a sense, inherit the entire history of the church as part of your own personal story in the Lord. And so now, here we are, 35 years later, it's a question worth asking. Are we a dead church? Now, I would just give you my personal opinion. I don't think so. I don't think this church would be looked at by the Lord, evaluated by the Lord himself, and he would say, ah, that's a dead church there. But does that mean there's nothing for us to learn from Sardis? And the answer is no, that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to learn. There's a lot for us to learn. There are a couple of ways that the Lord teaches his people, and this is not just true today. It's been true throughout all the history from the Garden of Eden forward, where the Lord speaks to his people and he teaches his people, giving them examples. And uh, of course, he speaks in direct ways also, but he gives us examples to learn from models to learn from. And there are basically two ways the Lord teaches using examples. He gives us good examples, healthy examples, examples that he says, I want you to be more like this. He might point to a person that's, that's walking closely with him and in a pleasing way to him. And he might say, I want you to be more like this person. Or he might point to a church that's, that's healthy and strong. Like our next study, Lord willing, that we're going to be doing starts in verse seven, the church in Philadelphia, very, very healthy church. He might point to a church and say, I want this church to be more like that church. So the Lord does speak to us and through using healthy examples, good examples to follow. But he also, throughout his word, uses examples that we would call bad examples. Learn the lesson of what they failed to learn. You don't, you're, not, you're not required to go down that pathway. Check the pathway out before you reach the destination that they've already reached. See, what happens in all of these churches, all seven of these, started as living churches. But this one of the seven has now reached a point where the Lord rightly evaluates them as dead. They didn't get from life to death in a single moment's time. It was a slow progression downward and away from the Lord to reach the point that they had reached. What's the big problem with Sardis? Not just that they're dead. They are, once you reach the point of death, it's, it is very challenging and difficult to come back from that 
That's what, that's what the resurrection is all about. That's, that's, that's why the resurrection is the defining event of all of history, the resurrection of Christ. Once you reach the point of death, it's almost unrecoverable. What was the big problem with Sardis? Not just that they were dead. The big problem was they failed to make the adjustments in their hearts that were necessary that kept them from going further down that pathway leading to spiritual death. There are steps leading to death that you can choose to avoid by taking the path to life rather than the path that leads to death. And they failed to do that. The leadership of the church failed to do that. The, the members of the church failed to do that for the most part. I say for the most part because the Lord himself says in verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. And we'll get into the details of what distinguished them, but the bottom line is, not everybody in the church, because the church as a whole was considered dead, not everybody in the church was dead. There were a few that were alive and many that were already dead. And that's the problem is that the church is composed of individuals. And so the church has to be evaluated as a whole, but the Lord is also keeping an eye on the difference between the individual relationships with the Lord that are represented by the entire congregation. So most in the church had drifted from the Lord in a significant way by the time this letter was written and sent to them. But some, a few at least in the church, had remained close to the Lord and were walking with the Lord in a way that honored him and pleased him. So I want us to learn the lesson that most of the church in Sardis had not learned. And that is pay attention to the warning signs I don't want us to take a single step down the pathway that will lead to death for the church. I want us to stay entirely on the path to life. Now, let's, let's jump back into the details of the letter. Um, we mostly spent our time and focused attention last time on the way that the Lord chose to introduce himself to the church. I've mentioned that in each one of the seven letters, the Lord reintroduces himself to the church, even though the church is connected to the Lord, they know the Lord, they acknowledge the Lord, they, they proclaim the name of the Lord. Nevertheless, the Lord is recognizing that the church needs to be reminded and refreshed of who he is in his relationship to them. And one of those ways that he chose to introduce himself to Sardis was as the one, the words of him in verse one, who has the seven spirits of God. Now I spent some time, I'm not gonna go back through this study, obviously I, I, I devoted a significant amount of time to it last Sunday, and, and those, uh, that study is available, of course, on Sermon Audio if you wanna re-listen to it. But I focused on the fact that there were two different interpretations, they can't both be true, but they're both at least acceptable within biblical parameters. Uh, one is that the seven spirits of God are referring to seven literal angels, but I took a different viewpoint, and the viewpoint I took is held by many of the best um, scholars on the book of Revelation. I think I'm on strong ground to hold this view, but I emphasize that I think this is referring to what we might call the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church, influencing the church, filling the church. And I think this is really 
connected at a deeper level that I may not have emphasized uh, enough last week in that if Sardis really is a dead church, and they are by the Lord's evaluation, then the big thing that's missing is the presence, the power, and the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who gives life to the church. And this is a true principle, not just on a corporate level of the entire church, but on an individual level of every member in the church. And this is a, a true principle going as far back as the Garden of Eden. When the Lord first created Adam, he formed him from the dust of the earth like a potter shaping clay and formed him into the shape of a human male. But he wasn't yet a human male until the Lord did one additional thing. And that one additional thing was the most important thing of all. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living soul the Lord you know going this I'm going to reference back to our study in Acts we've already been through Acts chapter 2 together as the church began in Acts chapter 2 how did it begin the first four verses of Acts chapter 2 as the, the, the original 120 disciples were in the upper room after Jesus had ascended back to heaven and they're praying and they're waiting on the Lord for that 10-day period that he had commanded them to wait. And then suddenly from heaven there was this sound of a, a mighty rushing wind and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the equivalent of Adam being filled with the breath of life. It's the spirit filling the church that gives life to the church. And if a church has reached in their progression drifting from the Lord, if the church has reached a point where it's now identified and evaluated by the Lord as being a dead church, what's happened between how it started and where it's ended up? What's happened is their relationship to the Holy Spirit has changed. He's the spirit of life. There's no way a church can be called a dead church if the church as a body of people has a healthy relationship with the spirit of life. But if we don't, then we will eventually be rightly identified as a dead church. And that's really, everything else aside, the, the most important evaluation point from this letter. Now, some, um, I don't know some, I know two uh, shared with me after the study last week that they had a, a difficult time understanding how the Holy Spirit could be described, even symbolically, uh, here in verse 1 as uh, the seven spirits of God. Uh, I'll share one more verse that I just ran out of time to share it last week, but I'll share it, and this might help bring some clarity on that point before we move on. Uh, head back to chapter 1 of Revelation. This verse was for me the um, convincing verse and that swayed my conclusion about whether the seven spirits of God are a reference to seven angels or whether the seven spirits of God are a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right, so I'm reading from chapter one, verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and this, this, this portion here, grace to you and peace. Now this was, a, this was a normal letter greeting in that culture in that day, to, especially between believers, grace to you and peace. But I want you to notice where the grace and peace are coming from in John's heart perspective as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, who is that a reference to? That is clearly a reference to God himself. Uh, you can include the Son of God in that, but God the Father and God the Son are the source of life, the, the source of grace and the source of peace, and they are certainly both described in Scripture as him who is and who was and who is to come. But the verse doesn't end there. He goes on to say, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That and connects what has just been said to what he now says. The point is the grace and peace that John desires the church in Sardis and the other six as well to fully experience and all who read the book of Revelation is a grace and peace coming from God and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is what we would call a Trinity reference in scripture. Um, you know how the word Trinity is not ever found in the Bible, but it certainly is a excellent theological term that describes a biblical principle and concept as we try to describe the nature of God. God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. Three individual persons in one divine nature in fullness of expression. And in this case, the question is, would John have ever said, grace to you in peace from the seven angels who are before his throne? And the answer to that is, that, that kind of descriptor is never found anywhere in scripture. Because angels are not the origin point, the source point of grace and peace. Angels can do a lot they're powerful, they're glorious, they can communicate messages from God directly from his throne without any corruption or omission or addition, and they can do mighty and powerful things in the events of history on earth as God directs them to do. But one thing angels cannot do is communicate directly to the people of God grace and peace. Those are things that, that only God himself dispenses directly to his people. So again, the Lord is, is simply introducing himself. Head over to the Sardis letter again, chapter three. He's introducing himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. The point here is that he is reminding his church, and we did focus on this element, and I think I communicated this effectively last week, and that is that he is the one who has the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit in all of his work 
influencing and filling and blessing and encouraging and exhorting and warning the church that belongs to him. The Holy Spirit is always acting under the orders of the one who sits upon the throne. The Holy Spirit chooses to submit to God the Father and God the Son in all of his ministry in our lives. The Lord is reminding us of that. Now, um, I mentioned for each one of these seven letters that there are, there are different sections of the letter that are common to each one of the seven churches. The next is, if there's anything to be commended in the church, the Lord will usually, after his introduction, speak words of encouragement, commending them for what is praiseworthy in the church. And it's not that Sardis has nothing commendable about it, but they have very little because, again, they're a dead church. So the Lord says, I know your works. They were active. They had at least that going for them. They weren't just sitting on their spiritual hands doing nothing, just coming to the service, and that's it. They were active as a congregation. The problem with their activity was that their activity, in this case, was not an evidence of true spiritual life. I know your works. You have, and he immediately turns what would be a positive into a negative. You have the reputation of being alive. Why did they have that reputation of being a live church? Because of their works, because of the activities. And I will just tell you this. And I, this is not me slamming other churches. I just want you to be aware as you're evaluating the true nature of what goes on in church life. Activity is not, and I did emphasize this last week, but it's worth repeating, activity is not a perfect indicator of spiritual life. Now, the, the opposite is also true. If there's no activity in a church, if there are no good works going on, if there's no serving the Lord happening, then that's likely a dead church, isn't it? Because when the Spirit of God is filling a church and influencing a church, you're going to see expressions of spiritual life popping here and there throughout the congregation. And I don't mean just always things that are focused on us, outward things as well. So activity is necessary as an expression of spiritual life but you can this is the big point that jesus makes to sardis you can have activity without there being any spiritual life driving the activity you can get into a mode where you're just doing stuff like i've had i've i, I don't want to veer off into my own personal story too much i'll just say it this way i've had I, i've never counted up the total number I probably had, I'm 68 years old now. I started working various jobs when I was like 12 years old. Like I started, my first job was a paper route. That was back in the days when people had newspapers, hard copy newspapers, and most people had them delivered to their house. So I, w I had a paper route. I've had probably 50 different jobs in my life, a lot of jobs. And thankfully, I've only been doing one for the last 35 years, and that's the job of being a shepherd of the church. But before that, I did a lot of different jobs. And many of those jobs, I was just being active, and I had no heart for what I was doing whatsoever. I was just going through the motions, and why was I doing it? 
so that I could gain the reward at the end of the work, you know, for the money that I was earning. But I distinctly remember more than a few of my jobs being, I'm, I'm just grinding it out because I, I need the money that I'm gonna get paid for doing this work. But I don't care about it, I'm not interested in it, I don't like it, I don't love it, I don't have a heart for it, I'm, I just need the paycheck. Thank you very much. And then as, you know, as soon as some better opportunity came along, I was out of there, all right? So churches can become like that. Where there's, there's of course, you know, churches are supposed to be doing stuff. We all understand that. All leadership of all churches understands there needs to be some activity going on in the church. And so we can appoint activities and we can engage in them and involve ourselves in them. But if the life of the Spirit of God is not connected to the activity, what ultimate value is there in the activity? In terms of church stuff, what church is really supposed to be like. So I'm not saying that, that all of those jobs I did were total loss and total waste. They weren't because at least I was being productive and I was paying my own way in the world, which is a biblical principle on its own, even though I didn't know that at the time. So the point is, it's not that activity is bad. It's just from a church perspective, from the Lord evaluating the church perspective, if it's just activity and the Spirit of God is not filling that activity, then on that final day, we'll stand before the throne. And as Paul described, the Lord himself with fiery eyes of his evaluation is going to be distinguishing all the stuff we do as individuals serving him and all the stuff we do as a church serving him. And he's gonna separate all the activities into two piles. There's not three piles, there's not four, there's only two. And he symbolically describes them as, this is a pile of wood, hay, and straw. And this is a pile of gold, silver, and precious stone. And this is gonna get burned up in the fire of his evaluation, and we'll see that all of that activity was only loss. There's no heavenly reward connected to it because it had no heavenly value. He's talking to believers when he does this teaching. It's in 1 Corinthians 3, if you wanna read it. He's talking to believers. And then there's this other pile, which is gold, silver, and precious stones that has value to the Lord and enduring and lasting value. And those three elements survive the fire of his evaluation. And he connects eternal reward to that quality of activity. So for the church, they had lost that. Now the question is, how did they, how did they get headed down that road that ended in spiritual death how did they how did they take the initial steps if it's not a single step that takes us from spiritual life to spiritual death as a church what are the markers how do we know well i think there's a strong hint in the text and that is the other one commendable thing that he says i mentioned it a minute ago skip down to verse four It's the only other commendable thing he has to say to this church. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. The faithful ones. The spiritually living ones in the midst of a dead church. But how are they described in 
how can we learn something from the difference between them and the many? So there's the few in Sardis and the many in Sardis, and which do we want to be like? We want to be like the few. We don't want to be like the many. But what distinguishes them? You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay, so here's, here's something for us to practically pay attention to. Even if we're not a dead church like Sardis was, I don't, I don't want to take any steps toward death. So what should I pay attention to? What I should pay attention to for my own life and what I should pay attention to for the sake of the life of the church is I don't want to soil my garments. So what is that? That's a biblical symbol. And it's explained for us in various places in scripture, but in the best, if, you're, if you come across a, a symbolic reference that's not entirely clear, the first best step is, is there anything in the near context, meaning within the same book that uses the same kind of symbolism and explains it for you? So let's uh, jump, we're coming back to Revelation 3, of course. Let's jump over to chapter 19 for a moment. Revelation 19. And I have one question while we're turning. Why, I'm looking at the clock, why am I always running short on time? It is. Or one of them, anyway. One of them. All right. Um, Revelation 19, verse 7. This is, uh, the context is the wonderful, the wonderful event described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I'm jumping right in the middle of those who are part of that celebratory event uh, as they're worshiping the Lord. Verse seven, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has done what? In anticipation of the wedding day. His bride has made herself ready. Uh, the most recent wedding we had in the church was um, Jesse and Jade and then before that we had Sam and Taryn and you know I wasn't I wasn't unfortunately because of circumstances beyond my control I wasn't able to participate in either one but I can speak to them because I know what was happening on in both cases um, Taryn was before she stepped out into public and and uh, said her vows and was joined to Sam she was in a back room somewhere at the venue making herself what? Ready. What was she doing to make herself ready? Was she like, you know, like uh, football players before the big game, you know, jumping in the hallway and, and you know, make, doing a chant, you know, with a, the group of women that were with her there? What, what was she doing in the back room? She was making herself as beautiful as possible. She's all, you know, she's, without much work, she's a beautiful young woman, but she was making herself as beautiful as possible. And here, that's what the bride of Christ is doing, but beautiful to who? Who was she concerned about seeing her as beautiful that day? I mean, sure, I'm sure she appreciated if others noticed how she looked that day, but it was all really for Sam, wasn't it? Of course it was. That's where her heart was fixed and focused. And here, 
the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then in verse eight, the connection, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then a brief explanation at the end of verse eight, so that we don't miss the symbolism and the significance of the point the Lord is making. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So activity, that's what deeds are, work, service to the Lord, but they're characterized here as not just activity, but as righteous activity. What's the difference? What's the difference between a righteous activity and and an unrighteous activity? Here, one is filled with the presence, the power, and the influence of the Spirit of God enabling her to make herself ready. And there is a divining line between righteousness and unrighteousness. The idea of what was happening in Sardis was that many, not a few, because only a few were still walking in white in the Sardis letter. Many in the church were not at this point in time, is that there were moral compromises that were being made by the members of the church. Now, I'm not assuming this morning that anyone here is living in moral compromise. And you know what? I think we all understand what we mean by moral compromise. I'm not just talking about you're compromising some moral or ethical behavior in your life in the way that the world evaluates morals. If that were the case, no one here is ever doing anything wrong, pretty much, nowadays. Because the society's pretty much lost all of its moorings to the concept of righteousness altogether. The, the only unrighteousness in our society anymore is someone telling you that, that you're unrighteous. In other words, anyone that's judgmental in that sense of how the world views being judgmental, everything else goes. But in the eyes of the Lord, there are certain behaviors that he considers righteous and certain ones that he considers unrighteous. And on that day, the only thing that will matter is whether we live faithfully according to his standards rather than the standards of the culture and the society surrounding us. And so what was happening in the church is many of the members of the church were compromising morally with the surrounding society. They were living like the world was living rather than as the Lord was calling his bride to live in anticipation of the wedding day that we will enjoy with him. In other words, they were sinning. It's as simple as I can possibly say it. But the Lord uses much more highly symbolic terminology to to describe this compromise with sin. Which specific sin were they committing? I have no idea. But the Bible is pretty clear about the kinds of sins that concern the Lord the most. And they were some of the church, in fact, the majority of the church, because we're back to the few and many comparison, the majority of the church were sinning in significant enough ways outside of the church service. I don't think any of that was happening in the service of the church on Sunday mornings. But outside of that Sunday morning service, there were the majority of the church going out into their daily life and compromising with the culture surrounding them to the point where the Lord said, you're no longer walking with me in white. Only a few of you are still doing that. So let me describe it this way. From my experience as a pastor of 35 years, there are two church killing issues that we have to always be on guard against. Two 
individual believer killing issues. And when enough of us are compromising with either of those two issues or both of them, then the entire church then is evaluated in that way by the Lord. One is moral compromise, sin. Simply choosing to disregard the clear standards of righteousness that the Lord declares and requires of his holy people. The, the, the basic call in terms of not our salvation, but our sanctification that the Lord gives to his people. He gave it in the old covenant and it's repeated and emphasized in the new covenant. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. So if he's the holy one and we're called to connect to him, identify with him, follow him, look to him and live like him, by the grace of God, then we are called to holy lives. It's as simple as, as that. So moral compromise. The other church killer, the other believer killer, is uh, when you have false doctrine that infects the perspective and ultimately the attitude and ultimately beyond that, the behavior of the church. And so what we're talking about with false doctrine is usually not a complete evacuation of the truth, in a believer's mind and heart, but a mixture of falsehood, not with minor biblical issues, things that are important but not essential to your relationship with the Lord. We're talking about corrupting influences that creep in to your beliefs in regard to the essentials of our faith, our relationship with him. So either one of those in isolation is enough to kill a person and it's enough to kill a church. But when you mix both of those together, then you have big, big problems. And I believe both of those things were ultimately happening in Sardis. All right, so what does the Lord say to the church? In a single verse, verse two, he speaks to them and he gives them a short punchy, and so I'm gonna declare this in the same kind of way, short and punchy. He gives them, he gives them a way out of their problem. And I, I love this, this is a dead church, but the Lord still is speaking to them. So there's still hope, there's still possibility of recovery of life, but it's gonna require some severe level response on the part of the church in order to recover itself from death onto life again. He gives them a sequence of five imperatives. Now these are not present imperatives like we've been studying in our, in our uh, uh, home church studies for the last three years or so, but these are imperatives and, and you remember from our regular emphasis the importance of understanding what an imperative is when the imperative comes from the Lord to his people. What does it mean? It's a command. This is as if you're standing before the throne of God, you see the one sitting on the throne and he speaks directly to you and he's not giving you a suggestion, he's not giving you a recommendation, he's not even giving you just counsel, though there is an essence of counsel here, he's giving you a command and he requires a response to it. And really, when you're dealing with the command of the Lord, there's only two responses that are possible. One is obedience, the other is disobedience. 
And obedience will lead to life at this point, even at this late point in the, in the deterioration of the church and the believers in the church, it still will lead back to life. Disobedience will lead further into death. So what are the five imperatives? These are all in verse two. First, he says, wake up. I don't have time to take us there. Uh, for those who are taking notes, let's link Ephesians 5, 11 through 14. He quotes from a, Paul does from a, in that passage from a prophecy of Isaiah, awake sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will give you life as he, as he modifies it in a new covenant context. The point of the passage is the church is asleep. It's, it's, it's mostly dead at this point, but it is still possible by the, by the grace of God for the church to wake up. And in the Ephesians passage, what Paul makes clear is that that, that means turn away from behaviors that are imitating the world and instead get back to imitating the Lord who has saved you. Second, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I briefly mentioned this last week, but let me emphasize it now. It's a kind of mystery. The church is dead, but it's about to die at the same, at the same time. So using a, a pop culture reference, the best example I could come up with is, how many of you have seen The Princess Bride? I've referenced this part of it before. My favorite scene in The Princess Bride is when the hero dies. He's tortured to death. And then his two friends take him to the uh, miracle worker, Max. And um, they want the miracle worker to bring their friend back to life. And so he first, Max does some tests on the hero. And what he discovers is that the hero is not entirely dead. He's just mostly dead. So that means there's still hope, right? There's still a possibility. And he gives them, you know, a chocolate-covered pill that's the size of a golf ball. And um, eventually the hero wakes back up and he's back to life. This is a mostly dead church. And so what does the Lord say to them? Strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's a possibility of revival. And what's the first step? The first step is recognize what is healthy. Is there anything healthy going on? If there is, focus your attention there first. You would think, no, 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 focus on the unhealthy things first. The Lord actually says, focus on the healthy things first and make those things even stronger. Because the idea is there's a momentum to walking in righteousness, just like there's a momentum to walking in sin. And the more you walk in righteousness, the more inclined you'll be to walk in righteousness. Uh, I'm dealing with this right now in an area of my life, which is, you know, I went to Africa and the food is not great there. Sorry, it just isn't great there. And so I lost some weight when I was in Africa, which was good. I needed to lose some weight. Then I came home and I got COVID and for a week I had no appetite. So I lost even more weight. So I was in a really good place, even though I was relatively unhealthy. And then as soon as I got healthy, what do you think I did? I started eating like a horse, a hungry horse. And I just, you know, I've been doing that for like the last month now. And so I regained all of the weight that I lost from COVID and all of, plus all of the weight that I lost in Africa. And now I'm looking at in this next week ahead, I need to 
I need to strengthen what remains, you know. I need to get back on track. So there's a momentum to doing the right thing when you do it regularly, and there's a momentum to doing the wrong thing where there's kind of a, a, kind of a, a power that goes along with the practice of whatever you're practicing. So if you're struggling, take stock and evaluate what's healthy still in my walk with the Lord. Now strengthen that first, and then that will give you the momentum to begin to address the other areas that are so desperately needing attention. Next thing, remember then what you've received and heard. What did they receive and heard? Yeah, the gospel that saved them, that transformed their life, that changed them from death to life. And now, how in the world could a church forget the gospel, you think? And, and the point is that simply that in, in the life of churches, it's entirely possible, and I know of many churches that have done this very thing, they just suddenly begin to shift the focus from the gospel to anything else. It doesn't matter what else you shift it to. There was a church in uh, Newberry Park that um, because of COVID, maybe three years ago, uh, the pastor stopped preaching from the word of God for a period of time and started giving politically oriented messages. This is a fairly big, active, lively kind of church. And he just got locked into giving political messages. And suddenly the emphasis shifted from the gospel to, and the reason he was giving political messages is he felt that the government was being too heavy handed with COVID regulations and all of that. And he had a point about that. It's just not, that's not, that's not what we're supposed to be focusing on as a church. I mean, if you're in private conversation and fellowship and you want to talk about that and add that to the conversation, sure, why not? But if you're making that the focal point of what the church is hearing from the pulpit, remember what you received and heard. The idea of remembering is refocus your attention on the essentials of what saved you to begin with because it will still save you now. Fourth, keep it. This is simple. Live in righteous response to the life-saving and transforming message that you've heard. Keep it like a treasure that can be stolen from you if you take your eyes off the prize. Keep it. Guard it. Live it. Last one, the biggest one, most important one, I think he saved the most important for the fifth imperative, repent. Now, to repent simply means to have a change of heart, which involves a change of your thinking, change of mind, which leads to a change of your attitude and perspective, which then will produce a change in your behavior. And I would just tell you what's common in all of that list that I just gave you is the word change. So if the church is dead, that's a church that needs change. If the individual is spiritually evaluated by the Lord as dead, that's an individual that needs change. You know, and if the word repent troubles you, don't worry about it, just insert the word change because that's the essence of, of what the Lord is communicating. The Christian life is a life of continuing and periodic change. And if you're not changing, 
you're dying spiritually. It's as, it's as clear as that. If you're not changing, if you've stopped changing, you know I changed when I came to know the Lord. Praise God for it. But you're not changing anymore. You're stuck. You've just kind of, you've just kind of leveled out and you're kind of comfortable with where you're at and you're not changing further than you are right now dying spiritually. So you have two choices. Stay where you're at and die or change and live. That's the message of the Lord to Sardis. Oh my gosh, I'm so short on time. Um, no, no, I, we, we have another church coming in. I mean, believe me, trust me, I would. I would, gladly. Um, so the next, the Lord warns the church. What does he say to them? If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Now, how does a thief come? We studied this in detail when we went through Matthew 24 together. Verses 42 through 44, the Lord uses the imagery of a thief coming to our homes. How does a thief come to your home? Does he walk up, knock on the front? You know, although, hey, I tell you, people are getting pretty bold now. Home invasions, they don't sneak around in a home invasion. They just kick the front door open and invade. But most of the time when thieves come, they come unannounced, unexpected, and when you are not on guard, usually when you're asleep. So the Lord says, and this is, this is shocking because the, the thief reference is usually in scripture to how the world will react when the Lord suddenly comes. But here, he's suddenly coming, not at the end of history and the second coming of Christ, he's coming to visit the church in his next circuit. Remember, we've talked about as the high priest circulated among the lampstands. And this is the image that, that produced these seven letters. The Lord Jesus is visiting periodically each one of these seven churches. So he's gonna come and visit again. And if they haven't repented, if they haven't changed, then he is going to, in his next coming, be arriving like a thief because they are totally wrapped up in their own little petty individual lives. And they've forgotten completely the big picture of what church life is really all about. And then he's going to catch them off guard. And then this line, you will not know what hour I will come against you. And there is, there, I will say it this way, there is no scarier word in the Bible than the word against. When it's the Lord that is against you. Now, over and over again in scripture, the Lord insists and declares and affirms that he is for his people and with his people and watching over his people and guarding his people. But in this case, with a dead church, he's warning them and saying, the next time I come, if I find you like I found you in this visit and you haven't changed for the better, then I'm coming the next time against you. Now there's a passage in the book of Romans in chapter eight at the end of the chapter that says this. It's a wonderful promise of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now I'm gonna flip that because that's what the Lord does for Sardis. If God is against us, who can save us? Can you imagine being a church of the Lord 
And now he's coming to visit the church, but he is against them. There is nothing they can do to stop that judgment from falling upon them. So I would never, ever, ever want to be in a position where the Lord is looking at me as a believer or looking at this church as a body of people committed to him and for him to have to say to us, I'm coming to visit you again, but this time I'm coming against you. I'm no longer coming for you. We've been studying how the Lord had to say a similar message to the old covenant nation of Israel in 70 AD. We've studied this many times together. You know, the people that he previously had been for, he now visited them against them. And they weren't able to stop or forestall what came with that visit. All right, we are at the end of our time. Um, what I didn't cover is the Lord's promise of hope for Sardis at the very, I don't really want to do a part three because I, I really wanted this to be a short uh, series and you know I'm, all, I'm already uh, stretching it out a couple of times. Um, I would just say this, uh, he promises to them that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and he says I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I do want to address that real quick. Um, there are some have taken this this line, and it's in verse, um, just so you're all clear, it's in verse five. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There are some who take this line as the Lord is saying you can lose your salvation. See, that proves it. You know, your name was in the book of life, and then he took kind of spiritual eraser, and he, he erased your name, or he used spiritual whiteout, and he, you know, some of you aren't old enough to even know what whiteout is. But he, he, he you know, somehow blotted the name out of the book. Um, for those who want to read it, want to take the time to think about it, uh, it, this is a reference to Exodus 32, 31 through 33. This was a really important event in the, the life and young history of Israel. This is right at the beginning when the Lord was first forming a covenant relationship with Israel as his people. He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses was on the mountain. And the Lord was revealing the plans for the tabernacle and the, the writing the Ten Commandments, revealing the law of God to, to Moses to bring to the people. And before Moses could even bring the revelation of the Lord down the mountain to them, what were the people doing down at the foot of the mountain? Yeah, they had veered off and they were worshiping a false idolatrous God of their own making, the golden calf. And in that circumstance, there's an exchange where Moses says, Lord, you know, if you're going to blot them out, because the Lord says, I'm going to judge them, Moses, step aside. And Moses says, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out of your book first. And the Lord explains to him the nature of blotting out. And the point is, we're talking about in that circumstance, and it applies to Sardis, one who abandons the covenant. One who at one point was among the people of God, at one point seemed to be a believer, but now is in a place where they're showing no evidence of spiritual life whatsoever. There's no indicators that they were ever truly saved. There's no indicators that they were ever filled with the Spirit of God, ever under the Spirit's influence and power. Even though they met among us, even though they carried a Bible in through the 
back door of the sanctuary, even though they sang the songs and they, they ate the bread and, the, and drank the wine at communion and met with us and prayed with us and did all of the activities of church life, but there's no evidence of real life in them. In that case, their names are blotted out of the book. And this is not a lose your salvation. This is a, a promise that God makes. It's actually a promise to the ones that were walking with him in white. And he says, for those who have remained faithful to me, your name will never be blotted out of the book. It's, a, it's an assurance of salvation, not a warning of the loss of salvation. Those that were, that were like that, they never truly were saved. But those of us who are, the Lord is promising, just remain true and faithful to me. Hold on to the gospel. Profess my name. And if you do so, I will profess your name to my father on that final day. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. I am committed to you. Let's end our study with that assurance from the Lord. Father, thank you for all of how you speak to our hearts through these seven letters, these special portions of what you've revealed to your people. I pray that we would be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Thank you, Lord. Amen.